This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Did you know that the Supreme Court recently heard oral arguments in a case that has the Biden administration urging it to allow police to enter homes and seize guns with no warrant? A total violation of the Fourth Amendment. This is the administration is going after the Second Amendment again by calling for more gun control, which Joe Biden has now said is all about timing. Then we also had the recent decision by a ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals panel that our Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms doesn't mean we have a right to either concealed carry or open carry. Oh, and also the House just passed two gun control bills and the Sixth Circuit has struck down the ATF's rule banning bump stocks. There's a lot of news going on pertaining to the Second Amendment. So we decided to welcome back to the show our favorite Second Amendment guy, Mark Walters, host of Armed American Radio and Armed American Radio's Daily Defense. Mark, an honor once more, my friend, to have you here. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Historic times, Janet. Thank you so much for having me on and keeping this this topic in the forefront. It's, oh, it's it, just historic. It's it, historic. It is historic, and there's so much going on. I don't know if we'll get to all of it, but I wanted to at least put that out for listeners to know that there's tons and tons of action per, pertaining to our Second Amendment rights. Lots to tackle here, but what are your thoughts on Biden and that press conference and that remark that he made that gun control is all about timing? I thought that was a very important thing that he let drop there. It was. And first of all, the can I laugh out loud about that press conference? Go ahead. Just say yeah. I laughed out loud when I saw it. My gosh. Yeah. I, it, frightening stuff to think that that man is, has nuclear codes. It's really frightening. It is. Uh, let's go back to an interview he gave to the Las Vegas, Las Vegas what, Sun-Times or whatever it is out there in Vegas. I, I lost the, the name of the, the paper. But he gave an article a year ago, and they sat on it. And in that column, he mentioned that it was all about timing. Hmm. that you had to get the Republicans to do certain things. And, of course, the Las, I think it's Las Vegas Sun, correct me or, or forgive me if I'm incorrect, but uh, he made it very clear what he wanted to do. He's made it very clear if you look at his website, if you go and look up, if, if for those of you who haven't seen it, just uh, DuckDuckGo, and that's not Google, let's go to DuckDuckGo, yep. and search the Biden plan to end gun violence. And his website will pop up, and every one of his bullet points will pop up. It's all in there. It's all in there. And if you juxtapose that against the Democrat Party platform, the roadmap is laid out for you. They're in it for the long game. And when Biden said that, he was essentially telling you we're in it for the long game. Let's wait for the timing. Let me do it when I can. And I can put the Republicans. He's, he's going to try to put the Republicans in a position where they have to sign on to what he's trying to do. Because what the, if you look at the bill, let's say you got H.R. 8, H.R. 1446, you have the assault weapons ban. Okay, that are all out there right now. Though, if you take just those three bills, they're not going to get anywhere near all those three things. But what they want to do is throw it out there, let it stick against the wall, slide down, see what kind of remains a little bit high, and then start piecemealing it into other legislation, as he mentioned in that Las Vegas piece, that the Republicans have to sign on to so they can get it little by little by little, inch by inch. But here's the problem, and they know it. The their supporters, their Bloomberg shills, with all this money behind them understand and know, and it's important that listeners understand this, this is their time. 
and they know it. Yeah. And it is their time. They've got control. They have all three levers of power, and they know it, and they are going for broke. And if we're not paying attention, we could be in deep trouble. This is an historic attack on our freedoms. It really is. And it's interesting, isn't it, how quickly the accused Muslim gunman and ISIS sympathizer in Boulder, Colorado, just kind of magically disappeared from the headlines. And and it's funny because we all knew they would try to exploit this for the cause of gun control. But, Mark, you would know this better than I do. Colorado, as I understand it, has a whole lot of strong gun laws in place, universal background checks, domestic violence gun laws, lots of, you know, state database background checks, these kinds of things. Uh, why are they being silent? Why aren't they trying to bring this case up? Is it because of who the gunman was? Of course. It doesn't fit their narrative. They like to be in control of the narrative, as you well know. And if they can't control the narrative, they just move on. And let me, let's go back to this past Friday, uh, just a couple days ago. Steve Kerr from the Golden State Warriors, my favorite idiot, <laughs> was out there attacking Steve or Ted Cruz, calling him an idiot. He said, you know, let's just put this in human perspective. If that was your family, uh, Ted, or if, that, if you had, those were your friends, wouldn't you like to know that there was some form of a, a background check involved that would have stopped this? What Kerr doesn't understand, and again, I chalk this up to stupidity, the ignorance when left unattended for the apparent length of time that he has left it unattended breeds stupidity because the Colorado killer passed a background check. Hmm. Not only did he pass a background check, he waited six days. Now, I want to make it very clear to, to your listeners the Atlanta killings didn't start in Atlanta, Janet. They started in Southern Cherokee County, five miles to six miles south of where my studio sits, where I sit right now. Wow. I was at that intersection, saw that spa hours before that happened. My wife was shopping right across the street two hours before that happened. Ooh. It hit home. The killer bought his gun at a gun shop I was in today. That I have been, I've lost count of how many guns I bought. It's been in the news. It's no big deal. We can say it. It's Big Wood's good. It's a mile from my home as the crow flies. And he passed every background check. Yep. Nothing. And you got it. What does the word background mean? It looks back. It doesn't look forward. He broke no laws. There is not one law that these killers will follow right. that would have stopped this. So it's wishful thinking if you're Steve Kerr. It's one of those, can't we all just get along? <sighs> Let's sing Kumbaya and hope it goes away. Right. The fact of the matter is you and I and your listeners know that evil exists. Sure. It's there. Yep. Yeah. Well, not only that, but the FBI knew about this Ahmad Al-Isa. They knew about him because he was connected to somebody else they were following. So uh, nice job, FBI. If we don't have law enforcement that does its job, what good does uh, gun control do anyway? Same thing with the Navy Yard. I mean, it seems that the FBI has, quote unquote, known about several of these people. Yep. Yet they keep getting through the cracks. Yeah. Right. So I'm not going to put the tinfoil hat on, but these are legitimate questions to ask. Why does this keep happening? And why am I being blamed for this as a law abiding citizen? Yeah, it's enraging. Well, you mentioned H.R. 8 and the House now has passed uh, two of these gun control bills to delay gun sales and create a national gun registry. Mark, can you bring listeners up to speed a little bit on on these particular bills? Yeah, H.R. 8 is the quote unquote universal background check bill, H.R. 1446 is the weight is the extended weight right now under the Brady law, the gun control act, you have, there's what's called a conditional delay. We'll talk about 1446 first. It's called a conditional delay. When you go in to buy a gun, for example, let's take the killer here in, uh, in Metro Atlanta. When he went into big woods goods to buy a gun, if it came back conditional delay, then the FBI has three days to notify the gun dealer. Yes or no. 
If they don't respond within three days, the gun dealer can make a decision on their own to sell the man the gun. Generally, the gun dealer does because that means the FBI is not on his way. Okay, go ahead. You're okay. So that's the assumption. 1446 would extend that to 10 business days. Wow. That's a half a month. And if you still get a conditional delay at the end of those 10 days, they can re-extend it for another 10 business days. That's 30 days when you consider the weekends. Hmm. That's what they're looking to do. Why? It's not going to stop a killer. Killer will break in and get a gun. He'll take one from fans. He'll do whatever he has to do. We've seen that you know, time and time again. This is meant to dissuade law-abiding people from buying guns and making it harder. H.R. 8 is the universal, quote-unquote, background check, which would be, Janet, me, and, me selling you a gun. I've known you for 20 years. I'm going to sell you one of my firearms because you're scared of something. I can sell you a gun as a private transaction. I have a right to do that. This would require us to go to a dealer and to you to get a background check. Now, let me tell you why that won't work. Let's say you and I are criminals, and we're planning to rob a liquor store next Friday. And you have a 45 caliber and I have a nine millimeter and we get together and decide that I'm going to be the trigger man. You're going to drive the getaway car, but I want your gun. Hey, if I'm going to go in as the gunman, I want that 45 caliber to which you say to me, well, Biden's HR eight passed in order for me to transfer this gun to you. We've got to go down to the gun shop and get a background check said no criminal ever. Right. Right. That's the, that's the lunacy of what we're talking about because criminals won't follow the law. So it imposes another burden and a tax on us as law-abiding citizens. Yeah. It's yet another infringement and another dissuasion from keeping us from purchasing firearms. That's what it's meant to do. Yeah, that's a really good explanation, Mark. And if gun control were the answer, they'd be talking more and more about the successes in Chicago, which we all know has <laughs> been a total disaster. And there's a lot more to talk about. Bringing you up to speed on Second Amendment news with our friend Mark Walters from Armed American Radio. We'll come right back on Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Women in crisis pregnancies today are often under tremendous pressure to abort. But he was like, you're not ready for another baby. And at that moment, I felt that I'm not going to be able to be a mom to this baby. So I came to the pregnancy clinic. She said they go to heartbeat. That changed my life just from that ultrasound picture. These are the voices that a young mom in crisis hears. She wants to make the right choice, but society and those around her are telling her that a preborn baby is not a life. This is where the Ministry of Preborn steps in. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country, shining a light into a mother's womb and introducing her to the beautiful life growing inside her. I'm going to keep my baby and I'm going to be a great mom. Join Preborn in helping young moms in crisis. For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229. That's 855-402-BABY. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new health care program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the health care program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a health care sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options 
options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. We're so glad to have with us our favorite Second Amendment expert, Mark Walters, who is host of Armed American Radio and Armed American Radio's Daily Defense wonderful programs. And Mark, we were talking about some of the gun control that the Biden administration is all about. H.R. 8 in particular, we were discussing before the break. Now, this is interesting. H.R. 8, as it's been reported, would additionally create a database of all firearm transactions. And it was interesting that Representative Chip Roy of Texas said on the House floor, this is about creating a gun registry to track guns of the American people. And there's no way to implement what the Democrats are trying to implement without doing that. You would agree? Absolutely. In fact, it was Obama's Department of Justice that told us during his administration when they were trying to do this. And he was actually looking at, could I do this by executive action? If you recall, I think we talked about it on your show. Yeah. Uh, We've been talking about this a long time together. But what this does is his own DOJ, Obama's DOJ came to him and said a, a, background check, a universal background check, will not work without a universal registration. And here's why. Let's go back to that example. I'm going to transfer you a gun because you feel you need it for whatever reason. And I'm allowed to do that because you and I are private citizens and I've known you for X amount of time and I decide to sell you the gun. But there's a universal background check bill in place and we decide not to do that. How is the government ever going to know? Yeah. Now, when you hear people say 40% of all gun sales are conducted without a background check, here's how you break that lie. Really? If there's no background check, how do you know? Right. <laughs> because I read it on every town for gun safety is usually the answer, which is <laughs> Bloomberg's organization. Yeah. And you will hear, like Steve Kerr says, 90% of all people when asked support background checks. But what he's not telling you is that we have a background check in place right now so that when they phrase that question, people say, do you support the background checks? And most people say, yeah, because they've all gotten background checks to buy a gun. Every gun I've ever bought, I've gotten a background check. Yes. I don't have a problem. They're in place. They're there. I don't mind it. You have to fix that system that's in place. So the killer in Charleston's name is not let off the database by a mistake from a bureaucrat at the FBI, which is what happened, enabling them to call that now the Charleston loophole. Charleston loophole was an FBI agent who didn't do his job. That's, that's right. A loophole. That's, that's a mistake from the FBI. That's right. Good point. See, that's, so yep. The nuance here, you've really got to look into this and you've got to pay attention because the media is on their side and the media is driving this narrative. And if you saw that, if you saw that press conference, which we all did, all you got to do is look at Yamichi Alcindor and you know exactly how they're treating him. Yep. Kid gloves. Okay, this is scary stuff. Exactly. It's very scary. Now, let's talk about this case that went before the Supreme Court last week, Mark, because this is also very scary. We all know the Fourth Amendment and part of it, the, the right of, at the beginning, it says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And it goes on. But here we have this case, Coniglia v. Strom, heard on Wednesday at the Supreme Court. This involves a case, very briefly, to bring people up to speed 
lead. There was a troubled guy who agreed he would go for a psych evaluation after police falsely promised they wouldn't seize his guns while he was gone. Then the cops told the wife that her husband consented. Then they seized the guns and they didn't say it was to prevent an imminent danger. And they are arguing their actions were a form of community caretaking, which has been this very narrow exception to the Fourth Amendment's warrant requirement. This is designed for cases, though, involving things like impounded cars and highway safety. So now the Biden administration has weighed in and said, oh, yeah, we, we think that cops should be allowed to enter homes and seize guns. I mean, we're, we're like Banana Republic level here at this point, are we not? We are, and this is going to be an interesting case. And I've talked to Alan Gottlieb about this case, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I, I don't think this case really has legs. I, I really don't. It's not the Second Amendment case that we would like. It's more of a Fourth Amendment case. Yeah. But it involves firearms. So we want to, and here's why this is important, because the Biden administration and blue states are pushing red flag laws right now, which if anybody knows anything about a red flag law, this fly, it turns the Constitution on its head. Yeah where you can have an ex parte hearing. That means, listeners, that an accusation can be made against you without your knowledge and a hearing be held in front of a judge, your accuser, police officers, and you have no idea this is happening. And if you, this, your accuser says that you are a threat, and this accuser could be a former coworker that maybe you passed over for a promotion. It could be an ex-lover. It could be a teacher who heard something at school that you've never heard of before. And the judge, because, look, we have to be real, Janet, no judge in their right mind is going to say no to these things because they don't want something to come back and find out that this guy snapped two days later. Right. So the red flag law, without the accused being there, gets a knock on the door at 3 o'clock in the morning having no idea what's going on, and they're there to take his firearms, and they're going to force their way in to do so. Wow. And these are incredibly dangerous encroachments. And I, I believe eventually the red flags will go to the Supreme Court. Anybody with any sense of justice knows that this flies in the face of our, of our Constitution and our Fourth Amendment rights. But it, isn't it interesting how the left, in this case the Biden administration, is all for, they've never met one of these, one of these actions that they haven't embraced lovingly. You're right. You're right about that. Well, and we're, whatever happened to due process, how is it that you can be accused of something and have your property right. seized and, and no, you don't even know that it's coming? I mean, that can't possibly be constitutional, but these days, who knows what you can get through the courts? That's the problem. Well, and let me, let me, take, let me go one extra step with these red flag laws. You don't have the right to an attorney under red flag because you've not been accused of crime. Wow. So if you want an attorney, you've got to pay for one out of your own pocket because you've not been accused of a crime. Amazing. Oh, man. Well, I'm telling you, I'm uh, telling you, it's crazy times. It, it, you're right. Historic, Mark. You got it exactly right. Here's something else that's historic. I don't know if you would say it's historic, but it seems historic to me. This ruling from the Ninth Circuit Court panel on open carry and concealed carry. That, what do you make of that? Well, that's the Young case. That arises out of the Young case in Hawaii. Yes. We've been watching the Young case for six years. And in Hawaii, they, don't, they have a permit system in place, but they never give permits out. So they'll take your money, and then they'll tell you no. But they won't <laughs> refund your $500 or whatever it is and whatever hoops you had to jump through to, to apply for that permit. So Young said, well, if I don't have a right, because I have a right to keep and bear arms under the Constitution— if you're going to deny me my right to get a concealed carry permit, that means I can openly carry my gun. That's how the Young case rose. Mm. So we've been watching this case. In this particular case, you've got to go back to a three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit that upheld 
judge of uh, the young case and said, yeah, that's right. He does have a right to open carry. And then it went to an embank panel of the Ninth Circus who said, no, you don't. But not only did they say no about open carry, they also decided to throw concealed carry in there, which wasn't even a part of the case. <laughs> oh, man. You know, they just make stuff up as they go along. Now, let me tell your listeners why this is a good thing. Because we want this case to go to the Supreme Court. Yeah. We want the court to take one of these cases. Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Thomas are screaming for one of these cases. And if you go back to the Peruta case, very similar, in, uh, two years ago or three years ago in, in uh, 2017, gosh, time is flying, the Supreme Court, we w- were sure, was going to take that Peruta case. That was one of 10 cases, five of which were Second Amendment Foundation cases, by the way. Great. And the Supreme Court took none of them. <laughs> That's when we knew that the linchpin was Roberts, that he could no longer be counted on because we knew we had four justices that wanted a Second Amendment case. They didn't feel confident that Roberts was going to rule in our favor. So those justices literally saved the Second Amendment. Wow. And they knew it. So they are to be, you've got to go back and look at it in that way. They knew that Roberts could not be counted on, even though Roberts voted in our favor in 08, the Heller case, and in 2010, subsequently two years later, in the uh, McDonald v. Chicago case. Yep. But apparently, over those, those two years, you've known he's gotten very wishy-washy and shifted left. Yes. So those justices now said, we've got to wait for the right case. Now... We have Amy Coney Barrett on the court, and we feel very comfortable, as does Alan Gottlieb, who was lining up lawsuits, ready to go, as we speak, as shots across the bow. We want these cases to get to the Supreme Court. We are looking forward to it. Well, now, is this what might come up in that New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Corlett, which the Supreme Court is considering, you know, whether or not to take that? Because that concerns the right to carry firearms outside your home, or is that a totally yeah. different subject? Well, it's, it, is, it kind of is, it kind of isn't. It's kind of hard to explain. We don't have enough time to go into that. But Heller dealt specifically in Scalia's decision. And this is where Scalia was brilliant. And we would like to have had his ruling go a little bit farther. But Scalia was dealing, and this is why we loved him, because he didn't do what the Ninth Circus just did and throw something in there that wasn't even a part of the case. Yeah. He ruled on the case, which was enabling Mr. Dick Heller, as a good friend of mine, to be able to keep a gun in his home for protection and that he left it at that. And by doing so, while it was a brilliant decision and it enshrined the individual right to keep and bear arms, opening up the subsequent 2010 McDonald v. Chicago case, we would have liked to have seen it go, part, go farther, but it wasn't part of the case. We don't want activist judges. Right. We actually walk and talk what we preach. Right. So we want one of these cases now to come up that finally puts this to rest. And the left knows that if we get that case, we can knock down all of their gun control. It's all built on a house of cards. I really hope and pray we can do that. Looking on the horizon, Mark, with everything that's going on and how historic everything is that the Biden administration wants to do, how truly, uh, I would say, diabolical these people are, what concerns you most on the horizon of all the bills, all the cases, all the wants and needs that they put on their list of things to do to disarm us? What, What is concerning you the most at the moment? Knocking out the filibuster. If they knock out the filibuster, they're going to be able to run roughshod on us. Now, that would wipe out the necessary 10 additional votes that they would have to pull Republicans in. But you have, here's the thing. And the other is Joe Manchin. Yes. And if you think I'm yes. kidding, yes. look back on Friday, just a couple of days ago, Janet, when Joe Manchin's wife was offered the job by the Biden administration. Wow. They know how important he is to all of us. He's the linchpin. Yes. And he comes from a red state. So we're going to see whether or not Joe Manchin is going to move with his constituents or whether or not he's going to move with AOC and the rest of the progressive communist Marxist masquerading as former Democrats. 
So he holds the key. So it's piecemeal stuff that I'm concerned with. I don't think H.R. 127, for example, that monstrosity from down there from Sheila Jackson Lee in Houston is going to get legs. But pieces of it could. And that's why we're paying very careful attention to that. It's piecemeal. They're in this for the long haul. Well, it's all very important. And the website, armedamericanradio.com. Mark Walters, host of Armed American Radio. Always a wonderful guest to have with us. Thank you so much, Mark. Always great to have you here. Always a pleasure. Anytime. Thank you, Janet. All right. God bless you. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This Janet Meffer Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. The Washington Examiner reports that even with an extra $36 billion in President Biden's $1.9 trillion spending bill to shore up Obamacare, many young singles still won't qualify for it and will actually have to pay the full cost of health insurance premiums that have skyrocketed in recent years. That portion of the American Rescue Plan was to temporarily expand premium tax credits to help people afford insurance on the exchanges. And yet the paper found that even a 30-year-old individual may just over 400% of the federal poverty level doesn't qualify for a subsidy in many major metropolitan areas, including Chicago, Denver, LA, and Washington, D.C. Well, so much for affordable health care. I don't know, but for many of us, cost is critical. If you can't afford to pay your health care costs, that could one day turn catastrophic. And thankfully, the Obamacare exchanges are not the only option that Americans have. So we're going to talk about it right now with Matt Bellis, Chief Communications Officer for Liberty. Health Share, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Matt, it is so good to talk to you again. How are you? Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. What do you think about this situation that so many young people are in, even with this expansion of tax subsidies? I mean, $36 billion is an awful lot of money, and apparently it's not even completely solving the problem it's set out to solve. Well, this is a indicative uh, issue that we see over and over and over again. Every single time the government tries to get involved in health care and do what it can to make it better for so many people, there are inevitably going to be another group of people or even the people that they were trying to help doesn't get the intended help or uh, necessary items that they deserve. So what ends up happening is that the people at the, uh, the bottom or those who are struggling or those who just want to take care of their health care Uh, has increasing bureaucracy, increasing complexity, and a lot of times that money is mismanaged, misspent, and uh, misappropriated. So unfortunately, it's just a same old, same old, you know, we go through crisis, we we look for uh, some answers from the government, the government spends money, uh, it doesn't go towards the things that we had hoped that they would go towards, uh, and we're still end up uh, in the same situation that we found ourselves in, uh, just with a lot more debt. So oh, right. it's unfortunate that uh, that system 
prevails. But uh, at some point, hopefully, (laughs) here's hoping that we learn our lesson. Well, that would be a nice thing. I know when Obamacare was being touted, it was supposed to be affordable health care, affordable, affordable. That word was thrown around quite a bit. And yet we have seen these premiums go up and up and up and up. What is the simple explanation, Matt, for people who are just listening now and saying, you know, why is my health insurance so expensive? What really contributes to those out of control costs that I'm seeing when I get my bill? I'm so glad you asked it in that way because it can be a very complex issue, multifaceted, lots of things contributing to it, but it comes down to this very simple fact is that the individual person, the individual patient has been completely divorced from the actual cost of health care. Nowhere else in our lives are we going into a situation in the marketplace where we find out what the, what the bill is after we have consumed what we uh, have intended. Yep. If there is a bill to be had, it's because we got upfront pricing in the first place. You don't go to a restaurant, get a cup of coffee, find out that it costs a lot more money at the, at the end, uh, but you've got to go pay a premium on your coffee and then get a deductible so that your coffee provider can then <laughs> pay the actual uh, coffee uh, provider to the – it just – the complexities mount up and mount up and mount up. And we think that the only way to take care of complex health care systems is through bureaucratic, complex third-party payment systems that completely, again, divorce the patient from the actual cost of health care. So many decades of those types of policies, the cronyism between the health care, the insurance, and the government industries coming together uh, to, uh, to help, help issue in these issues and problems just continues to bring that complexity, that cost, and that bureaucracy to a point where it's breaking for the patient, and we need a completely different system to attack the healthcare model altogether. Well, right, and it's maddening for a lot of people to try to navigate that entire third-party payer system. Of course, Obamacare was a turning point for a lot of people in seeking out a lower-cost solution to paying for their health costs. How has Liberty HealthShare fit into that equation? And maybe for those who aren't familiar with the model of healthcare sharing, How is it different from what they may be experiencing on the exchanges or through their employer-provided insurance? Well, the very fact is that Liberty HealthShare and healthcare sharing is not insurance. We are a group of individuals who have voluntarily gathered together to share in each other's medical expenses, and we do so on a regular monthly basis without the advent of a third-party insurance system or the government. We do this on our own. Frankly, it's what you would normally do if ever you had a situation that was unexpected and unaffordable. It'd be your friends and family and neighbors that you would turn to in times of need. And so we've just taken that model, that system, and uh, put some uh, technology behind it, some effectiveness behind it, and have a whole system of healthcare sharing to take care of each other's medical bills. But with the system of healthcare sharing and Liberty Health Share, because we're a group of individuals, we're considered private pay patients. Right. So we unleash the most effective, most efficient cost containment measure in the marketplace today, and that's the individual private pay patient, the person who is on the front lines 
making decisions for their health care, their family, knowing what their needs are, working with their doctor. They're the ones in the driver's seat holding the power of the purse strings. They're the ones making the decisions, and it means the absolute world of difference when it comes to the outcome and the cost effectiveness of health care. When you unleash the private pay patients, you see costs go down, you see access rise, and you see greater effectiveness and efficiencies within the individual marketplace. So the problems that we see within third-party and government healthcare systems, we don't have because we've unleashed that cost-containment effective uh, measure called the private pay patients. Well, right now, for many who are not familiar with how Liberty HealthShare works, how does the system work? Because a newbie might say, how do my premiums necessarily go to somebody else in the system who I don't even know? How does that work? I'm a private pay patient per se, as you mentioned, when I'm with my doctor or my hospital. But how do those costs actually get shared with other people? And what is the interaction between me and someone else who is part of Liberty HealthShare that creates that kind of community feel? Sure. Uh, we actually have a system online that we call Sharebox. It's where we do all of our giving and sharing and receiving. Uh, so that system alone really helps us start to figure out where our sharing goes. Because each and every month, our members of Liberty HealthShare have a preset, predetermined share amount that they send through their Sharebox each and every month. Liberty HealthShare is there to aggregate those relationships and send your share dollars to another member who has a real uh, medical need at that moment, who has a medical bill and needs to have it taken care of. So Liberty HealthShare is helping administer all of those funds to make sure all of those needs are actually met. And likewise, whenever you go to the doctor, you let them know that you're a, a private pay patient or that they can even send the bills through the system of Liberty HealthShare, that they can be paid through Liberty HealthShare, that the member can either prepay or get billed by the doctor or hospital and send it in. However it works for the doctor and hospital or the patient best, they can work that system out. And then the member sends those bills into Liberty HealthShare, and all of the members of Liberty HealthShare then help pay your actual bills. So this is true member-to-member, person-to-person cost-sharing. And we're cost-sharing on the actual dollars on health care. Not the uh, the guest amount, not not the uh, the predetermined amount, or not the negotiated amount that's secretive behind doors uh, within the hospitals insurance companies. No, these are real dollars that the hospitals and and the patients are actually dealing with, so that we're spending and sharing in the actual cost of healthcare, which in most times means significant discounts uh, for the actual patient. So well, very, very simple, very easy process, but it's different from what a lot of people know. Well, right. And you can find out more by going to libertyhealthshare.org, libertyhealthshare.org. Matt Bellis with us. So good to talk to you, Matt. Thanks a lot for being here. We'll talk to you next month. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be back.
This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International, engaging the world with God's Word for more than 80 years. Believers in Africa are hungry to read their very own Bibles. Hear from Pastor Jeremiah in Zimbabwe. The church is growing very fast in the northern part of the country where Tsonga-speaking people and Zulu-speaking people and, uh, you know, we find that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit there where the hunger or spiritual hunger is very much visible. If you can imagine 10 Christians right now in many places in Africa, on average, nine have no access to the Bible. Here's Lillian in Mozambique. As we went to this church just on the outskirts of Maputo. Uh, the church had about um, about 100 people and the, the only person actually who had a Bible was the pastor. But everybody else had never seen a Bible. And that gives us motivation to want to go more, to do more, to reach to as many people as we can, you know, where God gives us opportunity to go there and just take the word of God. Through Bible studies and resources that introduce people to Jesus Christ, Bible Leak is faithfully discipling new believers in Kenya, Ghana, Ethiopia, and many other African countries. Here's an evangelist named Joseph in South Africa. We were in a place called Mpumalanga. The lady there is about 60, 62 years or so. She literally cried. She knelt down and she cried. She never, at the age of 60, she never had a Bible. It is so much fulfilling just to see people like her rejoicing um, when they receive their Bibles. You can be the answer to a Christian praying for God's word through Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and a matching grant will double your gift and help us reach our goal to send 1,500 Bibles. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet. Have you heard about the Corrupt Politicians Act? That's what Texas Senator Ted Cruz recently called it, but its official name is the For the People Act. But it really is a corrupt bill. And Cruz said it would destroy the American people's confidence in our democratic system for the foreseeable future because it's designed to rig future elections for the radical left. Well, Heritage Action for America is now trying to highlight the threat of this legislation and its potential impact on our electoral system, even as we got the good news that George just passed SB 202 to strengthen electoral integrity. Hopefully other states will follow suit. We're going to talk now with Heritage Action for America Press Secretary Noah Weinrich. Noah, welcome. Great to have you here. Of course. Thanks for having me back, Janet. Sure. Well, I know people have been hearing about this For the People Act, a really bad name considering what's in it. But can you highlight a little bit of how this really would destroy the electoral system? Of course. Uh, So they call it For the People but it is really for the politicians. And so we call it the Corrupt Politicians Act. Yeah. Uh, there's a number of things it would do. I think top of mind is that it would weaken election security laws around the country. It would override state rules and effectively uh, destroy all state voter ID laws. It would make it so that if you show up to vote without an ID, no problem. You just sign a little piece of paper and you can go vote, wow. even if there is a state law on the books against it. It would also prevent states from um, keeping felons off the voter rolls. So in a lot of states now, um, you know, felons aren't allowed to vote or they have restrictions on, you know, it has to be X years since you served your time when you can vote. Uh, Under the Corrupt Politicians Act, all of those laws would be negated. And so millions of felons would now be able to vote. It would also, uh, it also has automatic voter registration, which would add, uh, 
probably millions of illegal aliens to the voter rolls. Mm-hmm. Basically, if they're enrolled in any government database, uh, like the DMV or Social Security Administration, they would be added to the voter rolls. Uh, so there's a whole host of provisions in this bill, uh, basically destroying the most basic of election safeguards. But those are the top lines. Those are some of the worst ones. That's crazy. Well, and you think about the possibility for fraud. We already have a big problem with fraud, obviously, in our elections. But degrading the accuracy of registration lists by requiring states to automatically register anybody who's in a state or federal database, and there aren't any provisions then to make sure that these people are actually citizens, that's basically how they're going to get this done? That's exactly right. And so, you know, we view this as a partisan power grab from the left. Um, you know, they claim that it's voting rights, but they really don't care too much about voting rights. They don't care about a voter's right uh, to be, you know, free from fraud. They don't care that, uh, you know, about a voter's right to determine their own city or state election laws. Uh, in fact, they want to suppress the vote. They want people to mistrust in our elections and our election system um, and ultimately stay home. That's yeah. what we saw in Georgia a few months ago with the runoff. Yeah. Democrats were putting up billboards. Um, trying to sow mistrust and encourage Georgians to stay home. And so uh, Heritage Action is fighting back against this bill. We're fighting back on the federal level, but we're also fighting to promote reforms in the states. It's a block and tackle approach. We're trying to block the Corrupt Politicians Act in Washington. And then we're in eight states across the country. Uh, Heritage Action is promoting election reform bills. And we just saw a big success on Thursday uh, when Georgia passed a great bill, SB 202. Exactly. That was the one that I had mentioned. Uh, What are your thoughts on this new Georgia election overhaul law? Does it do everything that it would need to do in order to kind of mitigate against the federal government coming in and undoing what they do? Or how does this intersect? Sure. So, you know, the federal problem is the difficult one. At the state level, Georgia is in a great position. Um, They passed almost all of um, the Heritage Foundation's recommendations for uh, voter security. You know, we had over 20,000 grassroots activists working with Heritage Action on the ground to uh, to really get this passed. You know, these are real Georgians. They were contacting their legislators, really leading the fight. Um, But unfortunately, the state can only do so much. If the federal government um, decides to come in and override, if Congress... If the left in the Senate passes the Corrupt Politicians Act, it's going to override a lot of these things. Yeah. You know, Georgia just passed a measure that would make voter ID rules more consistent. You, know, you already have to have a photo ID to vote in Georgia in person, and now you have to have the same to vote absentee, which is a great provision. But if the Corrupt Politicians Act is passed, it would destroy both of those provisions. And, of course, there will be a legal fight. Um, you know, we view a lot of these measures as unconstitutional. Um, But that is the intent from the left, to have a federal takeover of these laws. Yeah. What is the stated reason, uh, the PR move that they're making here, saying why this is necessary? Obviously, they don't tell the truth. But how are they getting away with putting this out as some sort of necessary legislation for the United States when there's so much in it that's just rank corruption? What what is their reason for saying we need this? Sure. So uh, the stated, the PR spin, as you said, um, is based on, you know, uh, half, half truths and full lies. And so, you know, they're saying that it's voter suppression. It's Jim Crow in the suit. Uh, you know, Biden bizarrely talked about makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. Yeah. Um, but the truth and, you know, heritage fact, heritage action fact check this Breitbart wrote an article about it. That you can, uh, you can find online. 
Chuck Schumer said, oh, we have to pass H.R. 1 because Georgia is trying to pass a voter suppression bill. Wow. And that's false. Yes. That is a lie, and we fact-checked it. Uh, the Georgia bill would expand weekend voting. It would make voter, voting lines shorter. It would um, expand a lot of ways to vote, just make the process more consistent, expand early voting hours. Um, but that's not what he talked about. He talked about, um, you know, he pushed the Stacey Abrams myth of voter suppression, and that's the myth that they are basing the Corrupt Politicians Act off of. Well, right. So if the For the People Act gets through the Senate and this thing actually becomes law, certainly it will be challenged in court. But in the interim, it would what presumably override any good legislation that the states do. Would that be an immediate effect of it? Um, you know, the immediate effect uh, is going to be rough. It's going to be quick. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's going to another provision of the, for the Corrupt Politicians Act is going to enrich Washington politicians, it's going to direct billions in taxpayer funds to their campaigns and to their personal expenses now. Um, And so as you see, so you're going to see states shoring up their voter provisions, um, but most elections are two years away. And so the fight right now is going to be um, the Corrupt Politicians Act in the Senate and all the other bills in the states. And you got to have both. Um, And hopefully we can defeat the one in the Senate and then pass good bills on the ground. And then by 2022, we're going to see the effects of that. And if things go the right way, we are going to see a more secure, uh, fair and transparent election. And you know what? We hope to have higher voting turnout. We want to make it easy to vote, hard to cheat. Uh, That's why Heritage Action is both pushing these bills and working to register voters. Well, that's great. Now, I know that you guys have been targeting Arizona, for example. What are some of the other states that are next in line to perhaps do something along the lines of what Georgia just did? Uh, it's going to be some, some names you recognize. It's important states that have uh, that have had some trouble with their elections in recent years. Uh, we are, let's go west to east. We've got Arizona, Nevada, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Texas, Iowa, uh, Georgia, and Florida. I believe that's eight. Um, so some big states, some important states, and we're already seeing successes. Iowa already passed a bill. Um, Georgia passed a bill. Next up, it looks like it's going to be Arizona, Michigan, and maybe Texas. Good. That's excellent to hear. And, and you know, there's still so much ill will over the last presidential election, obviously, with conservatives who still believe that there was a lot of fraud on the ground in, in a number of states and, and that, in fact, the presidential election was not on the up and up. A lot of people still believe that. It would seem that this is almost ill-advised on the part of the left because it will only, it would seem, get people more, more determined to protect electoral integrity. Are you seeing that with some of the people you're talking to, that people are just fed up with the fraud? We absolutely are. You know, we've been talking to our grassroots. We have over 2 million grassroots uh, folks in our network around the country. These activists are telling us this is their number one issue. This is really a grassroots movement. They are the ones on the ground. Um, You know, it's really thanks to those activists um, in Georgia that that bill got passed. This is a top issue for them. It is top of mind. They are fighting mad about it. Um, and so I, I expect that's true. If you see some of these bad measures from the left pass, people are going to be up in arms about uh, 2022 and 2024. And, uh, you know, a, a, a note aside, I saw a report that most voters believe <laughs> that either the 2016 or 2020 election was illegitimate. So it's not a... Uh, the, the distrust is not only on the right. That is a left-wing talking point. True. Um, a lot of voters on the left and the right, for various reasons, uh, 
believe that there are serious problems with our elections. And so we are trying to inspire confidence all across the political spectrum. Good. I'm glad to see this. This is great. Noah Weinrich from Heritage Action for America. We'll keep a close eye on these developments. Noah, appreciate your work and thank you so much. Thank you, too, if you've been helping us send Bibles to Africa during our Bible League campaign. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10 right now with a matching gift. Your gift will be doubled. Just call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. And thank you so much for your generosity. We'll see you next time on Janet Mefford Today.